Hi everyone, welcome to Behind the Notes. My name is Joe Alterman. I'm a pianist and the executive director of the Atlanta-based Naranana Concert and Culture Series, where we celebrate Jewish contributions to music and the arts. Naranana comes from the Jewish song of celebration, Hava Nagila. There's a line, Hava Naranana, and the word means, let's come together and sing. And that's what we're all about. I'm thrilled to welcome you to our first episode of our podcast today, and I couldn't be more excited to welcome our special guests. Leo Sidron has a wonderful podcast called The Third Story, and every year he talks to his legendary father, Ben Sidron, around Ben's birthday. And personally, that's my favorite conversation on any podcast every year. Ben Sidron is a legendary writer, pianist, and producer. He's the lyricist of a rock classic, Steve Miller's Space Cowboy. He's an award-winning national broadcaster, record, and video producer, having played keyboards with or produced such artists as Van Morrison, Diana Ross, Michael Franks, Ricky Lee Jones, Mose Allison, Steve Miller, The Rolling Stones, and Eric Clapton. He's a scholar, an author, and a journalist. And Leo Sidron is a multi-instrumentalist, musician, producer, arranger, composer, recording artist, and podcast host. On a personal note, when I took over this organization four years ago, we were not yet known as Naranana. We were still the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival. And the question was always, what is Jewish music? And it was really Ben's book, There Was a Fire, Jews, Music, and the American Dream, that inspired me and set us on this path that, that brought us to Naranana. Jewish music is everything and nothing, as Wynton Marsalis told me. Jewish music, it's not really a thing, but it's all over American music, exactly. At Naranana, we define the Jewishness of the music by the story about the music, not necessarily the music itself. And it's all thanks to Ben that we got there. So I couldn't be more excited to have this conversation with two of my favorite people, musicians, scholars, and thinkers today. Ben and Leo, welcome. I think the first thing that really uh, comes to mind is something that I really, uh, that I really, uh, that really inspires me about y'all and that I feel and that I admire is that y'all both are Renaissance men. You both do a lot of different things that, that play into the, the whole. And I feel like I'm often, um, you know, people will say, you know, Joe, you're a piano player. Why are you also doing this? Or like, you do this, how can you also take gigs? And I kind of feel like it's all contributing to the same thing. I was just, Curious if y'all could talk a little bit about how all the things you do contribute to what you do. Ben was just saying to me yesterday, he said, when people don't know how to make sense of the multifaceted career, they call it a renaissance man, a renaissance. (laughs) Well, and also, uh, It's like when you're inside the bubble, it doesn't feel odd because that's where you live. I mean, I've always been interested in all the things I've been interested in and always been doing. I mean, to me, it's not unusual to read a book and practice piano. I mean, that's two sides. That's what I do. And you do it at the same time. Yeah, I used to do it at the same time. As a matter of fact, the way I think I told you this, Joe, the way I got through practicing piano when I was a kid because I hated practicing was I would sit at the piano and I would take my comic books and I'd put them on the music stand and I'd practice, you know, I'd memorize something and then I screwed my <laughs> comic book. So I was a Renaissance kid, you know, I could read a comic, I could read an Archie comic book and play Boogie Woogie at the same time. 
<laughs> but do people say things to y'all like, you know, Leo, like you do all this podcast stuff. Does it take away from, you know, does it? I don't feel that I, I suffer from it in the way that Ben did. I think Ben came of age when it was really, uh, you know, confusing to a number of people that he would want to be able to do more than, you know, have more than one focus. And I feel like I haven't really been punished for it or, but maybe it's because I knew it going in. I mean, I had a model, maybe, maybe it's that I had a model. And so I knew what I was signing up for because I'm looking at my career right now and thinking, yes, it's unusual. And I don't know of anybody else who has of my generation who has the, a, an exact replica of what I'm doing. I, I don't know that there are that many like role models, but, but I do have this one role model. So I see, I see how it works. And, but I also re recognized early on what the drawbacks were like, you know, you do, um, you do give a certain amount of, it's not credibility exactly from the outside, but like, you know, as a journalist, let's say mm -hmm. it's hard to be a journalist and be a musician. It seems like it, it, there's not a way within the world of the journalism to, to, to talk about your music comfortably, you have to kind of silo that. And then as a musician, it's kind of harder sometimes to, to, I don't know, some people, I, I, I noticed with Ben that some people knew him as a piano player and ne never knew anything about his production or his journalism. Some people knew about his radio show, had no idea he was a player. Mm. And I, I always thought, well, that's great. As long as people dig you one way or the other, it doesn't matter. I mean, we understand that what we're doing is all kind of just little pieces of a larger puzzle and, and it doesn't necessarily matter if other people understand that. And I actually, uh, in response uh, to what I felt uh, was, was kind of vague, passive aggressive yeah. blowback to being interested in history and bebop. Mm -hmm. uh, I started telling people, well, it's all journalism to me. Like when I'm playing piano or listening to music, it's a form of journalism. I'm learning about a culture. I'm mm -hmm. learning about history, you know, and when I'm playing or doing that, it's a form of reporting on my experience. Right. And, so, and songwriting is a form of journalism. And songwriting is a form, be a form of journalism. So that's the catch all I think yeah. of. It is all journalism. It's all reportage mm -hmm. on what we're seeing every day. Well, like Leah, when you were, you were up at, uh, was it Montreal? Yeah. You saw your friends, musicians, as they say, and uh, where are you playing? <laughs> it, was, it was weird. And, you know, and, and, and it's funny because I'm so proud of the work that I've done with my podcast and all of the work that it took to get me to Montreal. And at the same time, it was bittersweet. I mean, there was a part of me that was like, oh, man, I wish I had a gig while I was here, too. You know, but but the bottom line is um, I ran into all my friends and it was in Umbria too. Then I went to the Umbria Jazz Festival for a day too. And I ran into people and it was like, nobody seemed particularly surprised that I was there and they weren't surprised that I was there to do the podcast. And they wouldn't have been surprised if I was there to do a gig. Like I, I kind of feel like I get the best of it now where I just get to show up and, and it's not so surprising to people to see me, no matter what the, 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 the pretext is, or the, you know, the excuses that they got <laughs> and you enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I loved it. And, you know, I, I've been saying to my dad for a long time, like, really what I want my career to be is I want to just show up. I, I actually just want to get paid to show up. And whatever happens once I show up <laughs> is up in the air. It's available to interpretation. We can decide that later. I just want to kind of show up. I second that emotion. Yeah. I think that's the best. Yeah. Where every as you're walking through your life, yeah. uh, 
the same intention you have sitting there having a cup of coffee is the same intention you have on stage. It's the same intention you have when you're talking to somebody, you know, just being there and getting paid to be there. That's it. That's the best. Yeah. Well, I'll third that emotion. Yes. (laughs) Have you heard the the Art Tatum, uh, 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 Oscar Peterson story, speaking of your comic book story? I don't know if yeah uh, well no I'm not sure which one I go go ahead tell this it. is this is the one uh, Oscar was walking in to watch Art Tatum record a solo piano uh, recording and he noticed that Tatum was wearing headphones and uh, he said to the engineer why would he wear headphones you know it's a solo piano thing and the, the engineer said he's listening to the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and Kenny, you know, Kenny Werner, when I interviewed him, I don't know if we've talked about. Oh, this I think I got that quote from him, maybe. Yeah. I think Kenny Werner told that story because he read. Was he watching TV or, or listening to the radio? Milt Jackson. No, Kenny Werner, when, when I interviewed him, told me that he told he played a, a, a solo. He made a solo record. Oh, he did. And he either listened to the radio or was reading something in, in his mind. It was to remove all of the uh, focused mind, the conscious mind from mm. his playing because he's trying to get away from thinking in any way. So but, to unlock that. But there's also a story of Milt Jackson at a recording session with uh, watching a TV with the uh, sound turned off yeah. of a baseball game while yeah. he's recording. So, oh, so there's a tradition of There's that. a tradition. Yeah, there's yeah. a long tradition. <laughs> Frivolity and uh, improv. improv. Is it, well, just, maybe it's not frivolity. I know. I think it's a kind of funny way to open the back yeah. door, uh, let some air in, you know. And it, it, look, I mean, the music, the less you get in your own way, the yeah. better it is. The less you think about what you're going to do, the that's right. Play. So maybe that's well, just, even in the episode I put out today with John Medeski, he's talking about the, yeah. the, the sort of unintended benefit of playing while injured. <laughs> Yeah, because right. it takes your mind away from what you're doing. You're, you know, when you're in pain, then you have this pain to deal with, and then you don't have to think about the. That's good. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Wow. Yeah, I took a couple lessons with Kenny Werner, and part of, one of the lessons was just drop your hand on the piano, just drop it. Yeah. And uh, most of the we all took turns going up to the piano to do that, and we all thought we were dropping it effortlessly, but he was critiquing us all on, you know, no. You're you're too into this drop. You gotta, still, uh, <laughs> yeah, you to learn how to let go. I mean, that's a whole thing, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, well, I was. You know, I know. Um, um, like Ben, last week when we were on Lois Righteous's show at the for uh, you know for the upcoming concert, you mentioned how uh, a motivation in your career was kind of wanting to meet your heroes, and which I can identify with. And I remember one time we were talking and and. Uh, we might've been at lunch and you said something like, you know, maybe I wanted to be respected by the people that I respected. <laughs> and I could totally relate to that too. And I was just curious, like, Leo, was that a motivation for you as well? Like, do you feel the same way? Were you wanting to meet your heroes or just? Well, I, I certainly am feel the same way that I want to be respected by the people I respect. I think it's my primary motivation. And I think it's why I'm not more successful because um, I'm so focused on just getting that feedback from a small handful of people that I really care about. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I do think that it's not that I don't think about the audience because I do think about the audience, but at the end of the day, if I interviewed somebody or played a gig with somebody that I really care about and they enjoyed it and the audience didn't enjoy it as much, I would probably still feel great. Like knowing that this person I care about so much cares about something that, that I did or that we did together, that that's, that's the biggest 
currency there is. And, and in terms of meeting your heroes, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing that you can grow up around so many fantastic people and still have heroes that you want to meet and still find a way to kind of um, obsess over things. And, you know, um, that that impulse is always there, regardless of, you know, the access that you have, because Ben had no access to these people. When he discovered the music, they could have been on another planet as far as he was concerned. You know, he was so far removed from where the music was coming from, not only physically, but just uh, psychically, I think, in some ways. And meanwhile, I was raised with access to all these wonderful creative people. But I still have, you know, I still had my obsessions when I was coming up. And, and in a lot of ways, I think both my records and my podcasts are a kind of low-key way to get in a room with most of those people and and um just hopefully they dig me and tell them that i dig them too you know i was i was just going to say that anybody who's really involved with jazz has got some deep personal story to tell because of the nature of the music and the life and the conditions around going deeper and deeper into the music Mm -hmm. and i think that what happens as you go deeper uh, not always but what Leo's describing is you start to recalibrate your idea of success. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't go into jazz to make money. I always say you go into real estate to make money, right? That's where you make money. And so if that's not why you go in, you start to think, why am I in here? What am I doing? And, and mm-hmm. the idea of the reward changes Yeah, mm-hmm. and success changes. I mean, success, as we're sitting here talking about this, is yeah. totally different from success in the music business the last 40 years they wouldn't have any idea why we're saying these things when obviously what you want to do is get the most number of people excited about ideally ideally that's what they're talking about and we're talking about no 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 just a few good ones the good ones just get the good ones ones. but but i was saying to ben yesterday like i said you know it's kind of funny that you and you don't even realize it after a 50-year career of it where you know, you, he lives in a world and I do a little bit, not as much as him, but you know, maybe you also where most places that he goes before he shows up, people call him on the phone. They want to know what he thinks about things. I mean, we're doing these interviews before we go to Atlanta. We're doing interviews before we go to Minneapolis. We do interviews. He's living in a world where people are curious about what he thinks. And most people, when they get on a plane and fly to Atlanta or fly, go to Minneapolis, they don't, get a phone call a week ahead of time asking, you know, just curious, what are you thinking about? Or, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And that, that is a real privilege that we have to be, you know, mm-hmm. performers and to be, you know, musicians and operating in the artistic space and the creative space that mm-hmm. we have the, the privilege of getting to share our th- process and our thoughts with people. And I think that is part of success to me is to, to, to Oh yeah. And and sometimes uh, quite frankly, uh, it could be exploited for the wrong reasons. I'm thinking about recently, I I saw an interview with Roger Waters of Pink Floyd and he's trolling uh, Biden. He's promoting China and Putin. I mean, he's just completely off the edge and he's very angry and very aggressive. And I, you know, all the way going back to the sixties, pop, musicians, rock musicians have somehow assumed they had something greater to say. I mean, after Bob Dylan, 
Yeah. If you're a musician, you got a perspective, oh, right, to say, and and right. and it, so it can go right. <laughs> so long way. Right. So call us, but don't call those people. That, that, that's, <laughs> exactly. that's, that's the takeaway. We we'll but tell you it, about them. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. But does it go in the sense of like I remember sharing with both of y'all how I've you know have reached out to people like Sonny Rollins with like deep life advice and kind of saw them as like rabbis in a sense, like. Would y'all reach out to your heroes and stuff to ask life advice? <laughs> you, you're you're pretty unusual in that way, I think. I don't yeah. know. Would you yeah. would you have asked life I, no specific <laughs> life advice? No, never. Mm-hmm. And the closest I came was asking Mose Allison if his songs were biographical, uh, wondering if I should pay attention to that as life advice. And he said, "No, man. If I could live that life, I wouldn't need to write those songs." Ooh. Yeah, I think we do get life advice from our heroes. Yeah, but they don't know that they're giving it to yes, us necessarily. Exactly, exactly. And the difference between the the sort of symbolic uh, teaching that I feel like I've taken from so many of my favorite artists, and, and because I write songs, also songwriters and lyricists, and and all of that, you know. Uh, is re- very meaningful to me, but that doesn't mean I would ever pick up the phone and ask Ani DeFranco if I should, you know, take this mortgage over that mortgage, right. or if I, <laughs> you know, if my relationship is stable enough or, or not. And and I remember that was one thing that you you did that I thought was really incredible was that you you felt so strongly about the the spiritual power of these masters that that you actually turned to them for all the big questions in your life, not only the creative or the musical ones, but, but literally, you know, a relationship advice. I remember you told me that you asked Ahmad or somebody, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He said I had to find a muse or distract, uh, discover if, if a, someone I was dating at the time was a muse or a distraction. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know what inspired me to feel like I should reach out to these people for advice that had nothing to do with music. I, I, I don't know, but it, it, but they didn't disappoint. I mean, what's incredible oh, yeah. is like that, that's a that is a deep response to that question, you know, totally. Oh, yeah. And a real response, not a frivolous and not not a insignificant response. He was telling you the truth. Yeah. Well, I guess when people reach out for people's perspective around things like gigs, I mean, I grew up reading the kind of interviews that y'all are giving now to do this concert, for example, and maybe things like that and just feeling so connected to the music makes you want to feel like there must be something there. You know, our music feels similar. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I listening to uh, my heroes mm-hmm. uh, when I was a kid, I absolutely had the feeling not only that they knew something, but uh, they were special kinds of people and they might not be like the guidance counselor type, but they were definitely uh, not the financial advisor, not the financial (laughs) advice necessarily, but uh, they had a lot of life learning. Mm -hmm. And as Leo said, they might not even know it. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to say, you really want to learn from a musician, watch him get paid at the end of a night, Mm -hmm. see what a musician goes through. What is that psychological dance between the club owner, you know, I'm thinking of the hundreds of nights I sat at a bar at one or two in the morning where somebody is pushing these wet dollar bills across the, the, the bar at me. Yeah. And just what does that feel like? Yeah. And if that's the definition of your, 
your transaction. And that's I mean, that's how old you are. I, we when have you dollars. Got started, there was money actual <laughs> holding the money. <laughs> Now there's, now no money. there's no money no. and there's no bar either. There's no you know? bar. There's nothing. <laughs> reward is now in the next life. Exactly. In your yeah. next life, yeah. you'll be rewarded for these streams. Right. But I'm we, sorry. Now we wait for the the uh, Venmo payment to come in. That's right. That's yeah. right. It's different. You don't sit at the bar waiting for the Venmo transfer to go through. <laughs> you know that's true. Well, that yeah, not I, that's what I mean. Not that that we're not getting paid, but that we're not getting paid in cash is gone. You know and. And uh, it used to be much more physical. It was sure. very physical, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Man. Well, you know, Leo, I've heard the story about you, you shared the other day about, you know, how the drumsticks were kind of put in your you know hand at a certain age. And just for the people who don't know that story, would you mind sharing? And I'm also curious, it seems like y'all have so much in common. Was there ever like a disconnect between what you both enjoyed listening to? Like, did you ever go through I, like a kiss phase or something that drove your dad nuts? Or I don't know. Just <laughs> Yeah. You know, well, that's funny. I, First of all, this thing about having so much in common, I think, is a little bit of an illusion in the sense that we what we have is each other in common. I mean, I think we're, yeah. we we are we're we're very different in a lot of ways, you know. And mm-hmm. and um, but we have this shared language with one another. Mm-hmm. In term in terms of, I'll, I guess I'll answer in reverse those questions. Uh, in terms of going through a kiss phase, I I did not go through a highly rebellious phase. In part because I think I enjoyed the relationship so much that I couldn't figure out why to rebel or what to rebel against. And that, and that was the other piece of it is that it was very permissive and very freeform and, and kind of flexible. And so there were, I mean, I'll tell you one thing, they, they, like, they really, my parents really did not want me to smoke cigarettes, you know? So of course it's the one vice that I developed more than any other vices that I smoked it in my twenties. And, you know, it's knowing that it was just totally stupid thing to do, but it was like, this was the one thing of all the things and the one thing they said, please just don't do this one thing, <laughs> that thing, you know? Yeah. But also if anything, my tastes skewed slightly more emotive and sensitive than Ben's. So it wasn't Kiss, it was Joni Mitchell, you know, mm-hmm. and it was and it wasn't metal or or any kind of like hard, you know, heavy, you know, rap stuff or whatever. It would be more like I was deep into kind of Lilith Fair style singer songwriters that I think Ben maybe didn't under appreciate in the same way that I did. Mm-hmm. So it's weird that I actually skewed in the opposite direction in that way. Not not the I never thought of that, but that's absolutely true. Yeah. That, that was a path not taken at our house. And yeah. You took it. Yeah. Uh, and I from early on have uh picked up a bunch of music from Leo too. I mean it's not just because I'm older I had it. Although when you know when he was born when he was a year old he would go to sleep listening to Kind of Blue. And it, it, we played Kind of Blue for him every night for a long time. I mean, it could have been a year or two. I mean, it was just the going to sleep music. Mm. Uh, and then uh, there was when the Michael Jackson record came out, and we were all digging it so hard or uh, uh, the soundtrack from Saturday Night. Fever, when that came out, we all loved that. Well, we were playing that and dancing around to it, but there was always this kind of mix of music in the air at different times of the day, and it was just sort of in the house. It was just part of being in the house. We've definitely turned each other on to different things, and we listen to different things, and there there are certainly things, even still, that I'll play him anything, but that I I think, oh, he'll really like this. I want him to know about this, or 
I think he probably won't dig it as much as I do or what, you know, whatever. I'm sure he's got the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess when I say so much in common, you know, it just yeah. feels like y'all, y'all are a perfect musical match, yeah. you know, when you, in your play, uh, you know, you have a, the same, a similar feeling. And well, we have a feeling together. We have a feeling mm-hmm. together. And, and I, and I have lately been thinking that a big part of it is that we kind of found a way to the middle with each other, you know, mm-hmm. on, on a lot of levels, like, left my own devices, I will approach a gig a little differently than I will with him. And I think you also would take it in, like we have a way that we do it together and it's become so familiar. Mm. And one thing that I, I have noticed is when I was growing up for the first half of my life, there seemed to be this orientation towards the past. Like, and I was very focused on wanting to know about the sixties and the seventies and all the stuff before me, you know, and all the musicians that he played with before me and all the records that he made before me and, and all the history that took place that he witnessed before me. And then as time started passing, I noticed that the stories he would tell started to include me. And it's because I lived long enough that I entered the (laughs) history. And, but that's very revealing because it tells you that that is what it is to be in history is that you just, you suddenly kind of join the the flow. And, Mm. um, and now if you look at, I mean, we're 25 years into record making together and 25 years into playing gigs together. And that's longer, that's gotta be one of your longest relationships, you know? Absolutely. I would uh, answer your question a little differently uh, by saying what we really have developed is, is a kind of trust, personal Mm. trust. It might sound cliche to say that, Mm. but, uh, from the very beginning, when we started playing together, and he was really just a kid, seven or eight, playing the drums, uh, we developed a just kind of mutual trust and the feeling. And so our uh, pocket mm. is is loose. Yeah. And we were talking the other day, Leo was saying, <laughs> come on, we've been playing together for 25 years. Can we tighten this I, up? I, <laughs> you would think it would be tighter. No, I could considering <laughs> how long we've been doing it. It doesn't ever get tighter. It doesn't get tighter. No, it's a very loose, accommodating, trusting. And people pick up on that. And it's very effective uh, because it's authentic. It is what it is. That's right. just a fact. And that's what we have. And that developed just out of a real relationship. Yeah. And frankly, having fun together playing because yeah. that's what we were doing. We did not have a scheme about getting a gig. We were in the attic playing. Yeah. Mm. So that but then I started scheming eventually. I, I literally was thinking of, of quitting performing at one point uh, because I was busy producing records and the gigs were just not what they used to be. Yeah. And just at that moment, Leo got to the point where he wanted to play out. And uh, I've, I've been practicing ever since. Yeah. (laughs) But it is, it shows how little you had to lose that you let your like 19 year old son out in the world, not just to play, but to book the gigs. I mean, I would walking (laughs) in with business cards and hustling at jazz all over the world. Hey, you got to hire my dad. uh, The only reason that you would let somebody do that is if you you were prepared to walk away at any moment. Right. I was prepared to lose it all. Yeah. That's great. Well, Leo, do you mind just sharing for the, the listeners just that story about, you know, about the drum kit? Yeah, yeah. Just being given, you know, how it happened. Well, I, I, you know, I, I remember my dad commuted a lot when I was growing up because we lived in, in Madison. And, um, you know, it's amazing to think that his career was 
you know, in DC and New York and LA and what everybody lived in Madison. So he would always come home and, you know, I, there were a lot of homecomings with him. And, and one time he showed up with this box uh, that was like a little cut down drum set, you know, and it was back in the days pre-internet. It's hard to even fathom that like, there was no way to get your hands on drums like this in Madison. Mm. I, I don't even know where you would have gone. If it would have Phoenix. been catalog or whatever, but I mean, if you hadn't had a dad who would happen to be in Phoenix at a music store and saw the drums, I don't know where this would have happened, but he came home with this little make. It was a, not a toy drum set exactly, but, but kind of a toy drum set. It's thin heads. Yeah. It wasn't cardboard. It was a drum set you could play on. Mm. Uh, But yeah, I got it in a music store in Phoenix, in Phoenix. And I brought it home and, uh, and I was, I had, um, a uh, temper, you know, I was, uh, I had a short temper and I was a little, I think, um, unsettled as a kid, maybe, I don't know. But Ben, I think thought maybe, maybe drums, maybe drums, mm. maybe a good settling thing. <laughs> I remember one afternoon when he was having a temper fit, uh, his room was on the second floor. He took his drums and threw them down the stairs. So I wasn't wrong, but uh, <laughs> tell me it didn't sound like Elvin. Sound like Elvin. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was just trying to you just sound like what I was hearing. Like, <laughs> so um, just a little ahead of your time, yeah. I was ahead of myself. So I had this little drum set, and then uh, you know uh, the local drum. I had a couple, a couple of actual drum teachers who were uh, uh, students at the university. And both were absolutely fantastic musicians, uh, Michael Weiss and Dave Stanek. And Dave Stanek is still a great educator in Minneapolis and, and has written books. On, but but the first person to come over and sit with me at the drums and over the years, the one who would kind of check in on me and was clearly one of the most influential was Clyde Stubblefield, who lived in Madison and had been working with my dad all through the 70s. And of course, Clyde had played with James Brown in the 60s and played the you know, famous, legendary, funky drummer beat. And so Clyde was the first person to sit with me and show me how to play a beat. And over the years, you know, he would be my kind of guide. Clyde is the guide, we would say. And then, you know, after that kit, uh, I aged out of that kit. And then we had a friend from Chicago who brought me in a little bebop kit and set it up for me and picked out the cymbals for me. And then I had, then I was off to the races and we had the, in the piano room, drums and piano. We just played duo from the beginning. Wow. <laughs> And, and then we moved on at some point where I, uh, in the late 80s, got uh, a digital uh, Hammond B3 substitute that, uh, I guess, Korg made it, or I forget who made it. Hammond Suzuki. Hammond Suzuki made it. And it had a, and so I got an amp with a, a rotating speaker in it, you know, not a Leslie, but like a Leslie. Mm-hmm. And so it could really feel like a B3 and I could play left-hand bass. And then we really started mm-hmm. to get this time sense together because we had this bass drum feeling. And that's where the the mutuality of mm-hmm. uh, our concepts started to come together and totally silently, no discussion. We never discussed anything. It was just mm-hmm. in the room. It was Did you cool. just know when the time was right to get a gig together? like. Why did you book that gig? Uh, th- that gig was booked uh, just because of a coincidence. Although, you know, the more you think about coincidences, yeah. <laughs> the more you ask yourself, what are they really? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, right, first, the first gig. The, the first gig we played was at a local bar. Uh, it's funny. I played when I was in college because I've been in Madison since the 60s. 
I played at the bar uh, with uh, a B3 trio. Uh, the bar was owned at the time by this great guitar player from Indianapolis who actually had a West Montgomery thing going. He had octaves and chords. He's just a complete uh, one-off guy. He had the bar. There was a B3, a Hammond organ in the bar. And uh, he wanted to play six nights a week. And I was the one who said, yeah, I'll do that. Never having played a B3 in my life. Uh, but having listened to Jimmy Smith, you know, and uh, Jack McDuff, I thought, you know, and uh, the bar, it was mostly a black audience and it was a neighborhood bar. Mm. And if you could make that crowd feel good, they would make you feel good. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I played that gig for months. And uh, later on, 40 years later, that bar was sold and sold and sold again. And I got a call from the new owner who said, hey, man, why don't you come in here and play here? And this was just when I was about to quit playing. You know, mm. I was just done. It was like 1991 or something. And I, was yeah, I think the math isn't adding up. I think it was 30 years later. 30 years. Not that it really matters, but I just don't want years people later. to think that you're older than you uh, are. You're old enough as you are. You don't <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So given the update on the math, he called just when Leo and I were having this conversation about playing. And I was thinking, you know, I'm in the studio all the time. Why am I playing these gigs? And he, I said, well, I'll come in and play the gig as, uh, as long as Leo can come in and, and play drums with me. And he said, man, I don't care how you come in here. Just come on in here. And play. <laughs> it was the place was unbelievable. It was a kind of place that almost I mean, I'm sure they exist somewhere, but there, it's a dying kind of place. The guy would make food. You know, have yeah, a pot he, of chili. Yeah, on the he, bar. Would, he would have he <laughs> made his own chili. It was in it was in the black neighborhood. It, it was a total local scene, very affordable to get in. Uh, he would MC the shows and also provide a kind of running commentary from the bar. If he dug what was happening, you know, I mean, he, he, it was kind of really beautiful and so welcoming of this father son thing. And I don't know if the first gig was a double bill with Richard Davis and Manti Ellis on the other side of it, or if we did mm. one, but it was, so it was immediately in the local music community. And then we started playing there you know, a handful of times a year in this little place. And we would bring, we brought Richie Cole came and did it with us. Phil Upchurch came and did it. Frank with Morgan us. did it. Frank Morgan did it. Like we, anybody who was oh. around would come and play in this little place with us. And eventually we started playing out more in different places, but our first year or two, and I was about 16, I think the first time mm. we would just go and do these gigs. At, you know, we did, I remember holiday show, graduation show, you know, any, any excuse for anything, we would do these shows. And, um, it was it was so welcoming. I mean, the community welcomed me. It was almost like they were just ready for it. I mean, I, I joked that in 1996 or 1997, Ben and Leo Sidron won Madison's favorite jazz musician. We were I mean, one we, guy, we were one musician. Readers <laughs> one and it was true. Wow, true. In Madison, I didn't play, and you know that was actually the start of our professional relationship in that over the years, of course, I, you know, I play with great players, no question about it. Uh, and it's fun and I dig it, but I never have more fun than when I'm playing with him. And so I'm motivated to play because it, it, it's so much fun, not just being on stage playing, but the whole experience, you know, to share an experience, every, you know, every time you get on stage, it's a new, it's a new world, you know, you're just recreating this feeling. 
Oh yeah. And for me, it's just, it's just special when my dad comes to the gig. <laughs> Y'all are yeah. Still, yeah. Yeah. Man. But um, I don't know, another kind of to shift things up a little bit was, you know, I know um, Ben and, and there was a fire. You tell that story about being, I guess it was at Leo's bar mitzvah, right? And you were reflecting on your bar. Do you mind just sharing a little bit of that experience for those who don't know it? Well, there are two things that I remember from the bar mitzvah. Number one is one of the things I said is I remember at my bar mitzvah, I thought my father knew everything. And then later on, I found out he didn't. And I got mad at him. Mm. And so I said to Leo, I'm telling you right now, I don't know everything and don't get mad at me. That was one takeaway. And the other was Leo, because he was Leo, was going to be the opening act for his bar mitzvah. And he uh, had a digital keyboard there. He was playing some opening tunes and he was singing some stuff and he was playing and he started uh, singing something and then put his hands on the keyboard and uh, he was in the wrong key. Mm. The vocal was not the same key as where his hands were. So the message there was play the chord first. Yeah, that is the teaching of my mm. mother. That's always as a singer, get, put some note, yeah, reference always, note always down play before the you chord start singing. Yeah, that's that's perfect pitch, I guess, yeah. Those were the takeaways yeah. for the bar mitzvah, I think. But then you have the story, and there was a fire too, where you talked about your bar mitzvah and wrote and memorization. Absolutely, my bar mitzvah. I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd spent two years memorizing these sounds. I remember standing on the bima, looking out uh, as what I referred to as a sea of used car dealers, <laughs> uh, which kind of sounds true. Up, Actually, it was true. There was, there was a lot of used car a lot dealers, of car people, yeah. Well, cars were big, and this yeah, is no, the that 50s, was a big, yeah, that so was a car big business. business, good business. Mm. And uh, I, I, I felt like I was literally from another world. But when Leo had his bar mitzvah, those literally were his people and his cohorts and his friends and the mm. friends' parents, and it was really a lot of fun. And the difference mm. between uh, the the generation where I was a child of essentially my father was born in, in Poland. You know, I mean, I was a first generation American. Leo was all, all incredibly, American. incredibly in one generation. I, I was a fourth generation. He was a fourth. It happened. I don't know how fast. it happened that quickly, yeah. but it, mm. <laughs> he got three generations. Yeah, got three in one. one, yeah. But wasn't it, I mean, correct. I might be wrong, uh, but I feel like you were talking about in there was a fire, how it was Leo's bar mitzvah where you kind of, realized how powerful some of these Jewish mm. melodies are because oh. you you felt kind of connected to the past in that moment. Um, that- it actually, that that wasn't Leo's bar mitzvah. That's that was when I walked into this little synagogue the first time. And uh, I think Leo was w- even with me the first time I heard about these services that were going on. Mm. And I knew the woman who was the rabbi. Uh, personally, she's very politically engaged and she had studied at the seminary in Jerusalem. And so I was, you know, looking forward to, to the event. And absolutely, when they she started singing uh, Avinu Malkeinu and Ose Shalom and Eliyahu or what, no, I she wouldn't have done Eliyahu, but the songs uh, Avinu uh, Malkeinu, some of these songs, um, I hadn't thought of or heard in uh, 30 years, I don't know, 40 years. And they really moved me. And that got me thinking about uh, how come Jewish musicians don't 
and black musicians uh, love going jazz musicians mm-hmm. going going back to the gospel mm-hmm. church. There are a lot of those records, mm-hmm. but there's like only a handful, literally, you can count them on one hand of Jewish jazz musicians playing Jewish music. And mostly they're either super, I don't want to say sanctimonious, but it's kind of like that where it's like humbling yourself in front of the tradition mm-hmm. or it's, or it's kitsch, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, uh, Mrs. somebody put the Benzedrine and Mrs. Murphy's Ovaltine or what, mm-hmm. you know, you know, these kind of kitschy Yiddishy things. Yeah. <laughs> and what I wanted to do w- with the music is, is get it to sound like all the music we were listening to. I mean, what did an Aretha Franklin record sound like? What was the acoustic palette that was being used that you, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day of freeform radio, mm-hmm. you would hear them play uh, Jimmy Smith next to uh, Otis Redding, next mm-hmm. to Miles, next to Ray Charles, uh, you know, or uh, even Lou Reed, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, is what these, what does that space, that acoustic space suggest? And so the idea of bringing together these songs from when we were kids mm. to what we were listening to then mm-hmm. uh, was played out with 20 or 30 great Jewish jazz players, Lee Konitz, uh, Randy Brecker, uh, I don't know, Andy Norell. Well, we're talking about the record that you ultimately The record made, that we ultimately, that that ultimately came out of there. And all the musicians who were on the record said the same thing. Well, I haven't thought of these songs in 30 mm-hmm. years and left the studio with the tape to play their mothers, you know, because they wanted to say, look, I, I remember. Yeah, so it was that service that just the light bulb went on. That's really special. And, you know, Leo, do you, connect with the Jewish thing like your dad does, or do you connect with it at all? Or do you have, you know, I mean, the Jewish thing is such a major question. I mean, there's, there's so, there's so much wrapped up in those two words. (laughs) Um, Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And my relationship as a Jew was so rooted in that community that was formed out of really been walking into this little synagogue when I was a little boy looking for a way to kind of organize a Jewish experience for our family. And Mm. so I was raised in a kind of non-traditional Jewish community, but it was the only community I knew. So it was very traditional to me. For the longest time, my relationship with being a Jew was tied to being a sort of a Madison, you know, Jew in this community where Uh, first of all, it seemed like something that was very special and exclusive. I mean, you know, uh, I knew all these other families and kids that were part of this community. We kind of shared a little bit of a common experience together that the rest of the world didn't know anything about. And it it seemed important and serious and meaningful. And we knew these songs, absolutely. And we knew these stories that other people seem not to know because you know, I live in Brooklyn, New York. Now my daughter gets school off for every Jewish holiday. But for me, you know, that wasn't a thing in Madison, Wisconsin. You, to, to, you'd have to explain to your teachers and your other friends why you weren't going to come to school on Rosh Hashanah or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. All of that was made it kind of feel special. And um, and then, of course, there was the musical aspect of it, that as I was coming of age, went right when I was, you know, 12 and 13, whatever, that was when Ben was getting interested in the musical aspect of it. 
and talking a lot about it, talking about ideas. We would hear ideas in my house a lot about like music as prayer. This was something that Ben started to explore while I was in high school. The idea that playing music is a form of praying mm-hmm. and and thinking about that. And he'd already started to do some of the research for the book. Anyway, these ideas were present in my life. I was very aware of being a Jew mm-hmm. and what it was to have a Jewish identity. And, and you know, not only that, but uh, as much as I wanted to be a musician, I uh, was obsessed with Jewish comedy, like, uh, you know, on a, on a really heavy level. And I would, if I wasn't falling asleep to a Steely Dan record or a John Coltrane record, I would put on every night, Lenny Bruce, Woody Allen, uh, you know, uh, Jackie Mason, Jackie Mason, Mel Brooks and Carl Ryman deep into Mel Brooks, like so deep into it. And the movies and the, and the, and the books. And I mean, it was like, that was so, you know, uh, informative for me. And I think in part, because I was in Madison and it was just, it just, it added up to, it uh, was another thing that I felt could help me find my identity in a space where I, I didn't fully uh, identify with all my peers. And ultimately that that's a strange thing to say because I, I had no reason not to identify with them. I mean, this is a university town. It's a progressive town. These Most of these kids came from really interesting families, a lot of professors, kids and all that stuff. But even still, I always felt like, whether I wanted to feel that way or you know, there was an aspect of my life that was a little estranged from my peers. Anyway, the Jewish question was wrapped up in that for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then as I moved through my own life, you know, it, it, it clearly has been a, a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of the musical component, what I find really interesting is, um, and I think everybody relates to this every jew relates to this that ever learned how to sing any of these songs you learn it your way and that's the way you think it goes and then you you walk into somebody's bar mitzvah somebody's wedding you move to a different town and go to a service somewhere and you are confronted with this stark reality that what you thought was the music Mm -hmm. and by by extension your identity because so much of our identity is in the music is flexible and malleable <laughs> and in a funny way you know we've never talked about this but the the, the flexibility of the nusach and and the changeability of the melodies is in some ways a metaphor for the flexibility and the changeability of what a jew is because it takes on the form of wherever it's operating out of that's beautiful. and you know, you know what I mean? Like absolutely. When I, when I moved to New York and I went to a synagogue, I said, this isn't how the music goes. And how can <laughs> I get through here if they're singing it differently? Yeah. And it, it represented a much larger question about who I am as a Jew if the, mm. if the song is different. And so I think there is some some re- real lived experience that happens through the music that mm. speaks to our identity. And what you describe is a very Jewish thing. Uh, generally speaking, uh, a Protestant. Uh, yeah wouldn't have that problem. Yeah. They would go to a different city and a different and the uh, melody would be the same. Melody would be the same. It would be sung in Latin or whatever. Sure. No, of course. And it would be it would be this is this is this how, is how the hymn this goes. This is how hot you know was written uh, in the 17th century. And it goes back to the uh the the Jew who's stranded on a desert island, right? And he builds two synagogues, one which he will never set foot in. Yes, one to go to and one to never go into. Exactly. <laughs> 
so good. exactly right. Man. No, no, it's true. And, and also, and it's a very Jewish thing that there's a constant question about how the melody goes and what the, mm-hmm. you know, what the songs are that we sing and how we should be doing it. And, and the fact that we're arguing about it, because there are huge arguments about it. I mean, I think in, in many ways, Ben's impulse to play music at these services was a response to the idea that he just could not dig acoustic guitar, folk, the, that that application uh, of of the of the folk music to, to the Jewish uh, melodies, he just didn't relate to it personally, and he felt that it should be played on piano, and so that was mm. a very fundamental way in, which is just an argument. It's just a point no, of view. no. It's it's absolutely true, and it's because I come from uh, refugees, yeah, and I'm very Euro- European centric. With the melodies, with, with, with the Jewish experience. Yeah. I mean, that was my growing up Jewish experience. Right. Was always looking at Europe yeah. and the people who uh, were in the synagogue and doing yeah. things had accents, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that yeah. that's how I. That's exactly why. Yeah. yeah. I mean, now that's not your experience. You don't have no any emotional connection to well, Europe that way. No, not in that way. No, I mean, I grew. I think I'm the first generation of Jews who who could just the shorthand say, well, I'm culturally Jewish and people right. know that that's a thing that you can say. Right. You know, <laughs> right. You could not, that's true. You, you wouldn't could have said not, well, you could not say that in the fifties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Ben, we've talked about before how you might hear a, a prayer that you, you know, a melody of a prayer that you've heard in synagogue with your dad or your grandpa, for example, and it'll make you feel like you're standing there uh, with them. And Leo, yeah. I bet, you know, uh, the same thing might happen for you in New York, feeling like you're standing next to your dad. I mean, there's oh, an yeah. emotional thing there. Yeah, there, there absolutely is an emotional thing there. And, there. and there's something very deep. I mean, I always find it to a very deep thing when you get Jews that don't know each other to mm. say a bracha together or mm. say the blessing over the candles. If you're into a Shabbat where everybody's going to bless the candles. And first of all, everybody's kind of got their own little tweak on the melody or whatever. But just the idea that you're bringing your past and your personal experience into that room when you bless those candles, I always think is really interesting because people are revealing some aspect of their past when they when they get together to, to say the blessing. That marks them as an outsider yeah. in the room. Yeah. Mm. Right? They're still bringing in the most intimate situations yeah. evidence yeah. of being an outsider. Or, or yeah. having been an outsider. Or having been an outsider. Right. That's having been an outsider. And that's they're right. They're connected to the outsider's experience. Would you would you say that this is different than, you know, or or, uh, you know, when you go to Italy, for example, walk in a jazz club, you can't talk to anybody, but you can just sit down. And to me, that's a similarly magical feeling, I guess. Yeah, totally. And and in fact, so I, I started going to Spain when I was in high school and spending time in Spain. And I spent a year in the university there. And mm-hmm. um, and there were clearly two modes of transportation that I, that I discovered. I mean, I'm not talking about literal mode of transportation, but a kind of whatever Mm -hmm. identity transportation. Uh, One of them was jazz. And I learned that Mm -hmm. any city in the world you can go into as a jazz musician, sit down and communicate with people Mm -hmm. because you speak this other language and that's incredible. And the other was as a Jew. Mm-hmm. And understanding what it meant to be a Jew abroad was very interesting and realizing that I was bringing that, mm. not even language, because I never really 
learn to read Hebrew properly or, you know, after my bar mitzvah, not, not comfortably, not language, but the language of this kind of thinking, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of intellectual language of identity as a Jew mm-hmm. and finding other Jews, you know, Jews find one another all over the world mm-hmm. and they have a way of kind of like looking out for one another. And I learned that when I lived abroad also, but mm-hmm. absolutely as a musician, I realized that like when I lived in Spain in the nineties uh, as a college student, I thought, what would it have been like for me if I didn't have jazz? Cause as soon as I showed up in Seville, I found the jazz society. I found the jam session. I met all the cats. And by that, by extension, I met all their girlfriends and their girlfriends, friends. And I met all the, you know, and I, and I knew where to go have the, you know, the good coffee. And I mean, all this stuff was because I was a musician. It was a way of traveling through the world. And I like the way that you connect the, those aspects of being a jazz musician and being a Jew. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. I just had one more thing I wanted to, to, to ask y'all, but I wanted to share, I had a really interesting talk with David Broza about two weeks ago. And to Broza, I was basically expressing this thing that, you know, I feel a lot of um, Jewish American musicians kind of feel the same thing that the words almost don't matter because the melody is so powerful and connects us with the past. And Broza said he actually feels the opposite. He said the melody doesn't matter to him. Just saying the word <laughs> makes him feel like he's talking to his dad or his grandpa, which yeah. I just thought was really fascinating. It was. Yeah. 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 That Well, the, you know, I had a conversation with a mutual friend of uh, ours and David Broza's recently, Jorge Drexler, who, oh. who is a friend of Broza's and and um, and Jorge, who does speak Hebrew fluently and is not a religious Jew, mm. said to me. If you know what the words mean, you will have a harder time saying them uh, by rote. He said, I have a hard time sometimes saying the most basic prayers because I don't accept that. And he's, he's a Jew. I don't accept it. I think sometimes modern Jews, when they learn the sound and they feel the meaning through the sound of the words and the sound of the melody, mm-hmm. they feel something spiritual, but they don't know what they're saying. And he said, and if you know what you're saying, you have to choose to privilege the words. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Bros is saying. If you know what you're saying mm. and it's a different experience and you're not just uh, hiding out inside the melody, you know. I love that. I, I never thought of that, but I'll tell you what, I'm glad I don't know what I'm saying. And my God is going to kill you. Exactly. That's, and what, your God. That, that, that's what he, that's what he says. Mine is the only God. And, Mine is, you, yes. and, and this is the biggest. That's, not, that's 80% of the text. That is. The text. <laughs> I know. And so, and, and that's why we do struggle to kind of confront, well, what, what is this Jewish thing? That's why you said, what do you think of the Jewish thing? What is this? Jewish <laughs> totally. thing? It's so meaningful. And it's so real. And there's so much experience that we can draw from that speaks to social justice and healing the world and the contribution of the Jews to this country and all of the places that they, mm. they had to go and set up shop and become part of wherever they were. All of this we know. And yet, and it's not that the text is any worse than any other liturgy out there, but it's not always better. I mean, you know, it's, it's problematic in its way. And we're here trying to find some meaning in it. Yeah. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask y'all is, you know, basically, I know I've mentioned this before, but, you know, Leo, your podcast is my favorite. And my favorite episode every year is when y'all get together and talk. And I've kind of. Hey, can, we, can we run this one? <laughs> this of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We might have done the episode. Year. No, we didn't do no, okay. I got <laughs> you, you don't even know. <laughs> but, you know, I've kind of hinted at this question to both of y'all in conversations before. So I basically just wanted to 
ask a question and just get both y'all's perspective on it. Because I feel like basically wherever we are, I don't know if it's post COVID or whatever, but um, the question is basically if a gig happened, but there's no film for social media, did it happen or what's more important or what's the thing, the gig or the content from the gig? Boy, you're asking the right people because yeah, uh, I get it. And yeah. I understand why Leo is committed to documenting oh. the event mm -hmm. because that's how the event lives on. That's how the tree falls in the forest. I, I have a very different answer than you think I'm going to have. Really? Yeah, but I want to hear your answer. First. <laughs> My answer is I don't necessarily want to document everything. And in fact, I would rather not document a lot of stuff although having said that i think we, i think you're answering my answer and i'm going to answer yours <laughs> having said that it's true that i have repurposed documents from my life more than any Anybody. musician i know if i <laughs> i put out a collection a record label asked me do i have any live stuff that hadn't been released. And I wound up with a three CD set called Been There, Done That oh, yeah. with all these live gigs. They were fantastic. So mm. obviously I proved myself a liar, but- Yeah, so yes. Well, there is what you feel. And then and what, what you, you do. Know, and what yeah. you do. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think, I think in Ben's case, see these, we don't, we bring all of our experience and ourselves to these, to these questions. Mm -hmm. It can be intellectual, but they're also- they're very personal, right? Like I think in Ben's case, I would say, not to answer your question, going all the way into the psyche of Ben, but like his father died very young. Mm -hmm. And his father, despite being a, a, a brilliant creative person and a great writer, left very little evidence of his time on earth behind mm -hmm. after he left. And I think the moment that Ben realized that, he started saving every scrap, <laughs> every review, every poster, every live gig, every every scrap of evidence that he was here. Mm -hmm. And so he was a, a kind of obsessive documenter. And we've got tapes, hours and hundreds and hundreds of hours of tapes and video of Ben's time here. I think because he was motivated for posterity reasons mm -hmm. to capture his time here and has been. Um, and having said that, he's, he still says he doesn't feel like he needs to do it for any specific reason. Like it's not, not for professional reasons in the moment, not because you're supposed to. And I think what he's responding to is like, I want to get all this video. Like I, I feel now that you should, you have to do. He video. wants content. You, you got to have, you know, when you go in the studio, you got to get the video, you, you got to get the, get the, the extra studio. stuff because that's the way people are, are receiving their, the music today. That's how they write. That's what I was talking about. That's what you're thinking about. Yeah. Although yeah. I would love to have a video of, Train recording Love Supreme. Sure. Can you imagine how great that would be? Oh. On, the, on the other hand, maybe not. Maybe I mean, not. Because the because yeah. audio unlocks the brain. Yeah, in such you're an right. Incredible you're way. right. Anyway, what my answer would be is don't record any gigs. Absolutely not. It's a much better gig if there's no recording of it. Yes. Because then we get the, the much more valuable uh, currency of memory. And memory is always going to be more powerful mm -hmm. than whatever the document is. And <laughs> our collective memory, when we share something together, is the most powerful force mm -hmm. that there is. And our individual memory, as, as we go through our life and we 
tell ourselves lies about what we are and, and, and who we are. We need that memory to support those lies. And the only way to make sure that that, you know, remains intact is that there is no documentation. Mm. So, yeah. so I believe I like in that. lack of documentation. Very Jewish responses Thank here, man. This totally. It's bizarre. I've talked to a few friends recently and, uh, you know, I'll say things like, how was your, your gig? And they'll say like, oh, the gig was okay. You know, not that many people showed up, but like, I got this video and uh, uh. <laughs> got so much response. And it's, I just don't oh. know really what to make of that, that, because <laughs> it seems like in that situation, like when you're documenting or keeping documents from past gigs or performances, you did the performance and you got lucky that you have this stuff. Yes. Right. This is like the reason for the gig yeah. was to. That's what's the, happening now. Yeah, yeah, which is just I don't know. Is if yeah, I don't it's know. The nature. It's because of the nature of what a gig is in, in our lives. You know what I mean? And like um, a gig. Look, at the end of the day, a gig is more likely to exist on the internet today than it is in 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 real space like that's where more people are going to hear it and experience it that's where they're dating yeah that's where they're dating that's right, where right. the social world yeah, is. that is where the social world is. so you need the it's, mm. you'd be kind of fooling yourself into thinking that that's not where it's happening so i get it i understand where and ultimately maybe you only need a few people in the room just to give you that feeling that you're performing yeah, for maybe. somebody but but we've all had enough gigs in rooms with 20 people 40 people 60 whatever it is but just enough people that something happened and we know it or we've seen it mm -hmm. and we know that we were all changed and we know that we were all impacted at the same time i've, I've said this before but i once uh saw boz skaggs uh perform in a club with his big band he had this horn band he was just getting early 70s traveling around there were like 12 of us in the room there was nobody in there. A fantastic show. Yeah. I mean, those guys just gave it up yeah. as if there were 1,200 people. Oh, yeah, you have to. And uh, it made such an impression, this kind of commitment yeah. uh, to what we're doing. Every time, uh, I forget who said it. I think it might have been Louis Armstrong. Mm -hmm. or somebody. Every time you put the horn up to your mouth, you have to have the same intention. Whether you're in a kindergarten or a Carnegie Hall, right. when the horn goes up, you're that person. Mm -hmm. And that's very powerful. I mean, just to be in a room mm -hmm. when that kind of history is being made. And we've had this experience a yeah. few times where we found ourselves in rooms where the emotional experience is happening at such a high level. And the commercial experience is like low change, yeah. spare change. Mm -hmm that that even adds to the drama of the sure. music and the situation. I, I remember one time we played at a club in Italy and it was a very a beautiful gig. And, and somebody came up to us, do you remember this? And said, we want to pay you a ton of money to stay four more days oh, yeah. and play at our, because it was the Christmas party, the holiday party for some corporation in, in, in Italy. <laughs> and Ben said, absolutely not. There is no way I yeah. can do this. I can't do what I do at a mm. Christmas party. Yeah, Because what he does is so, you know, uh, well, first of all, we don't, we never know what he's going to do. So it's not a good fit for a Christmas party because it might not be a good, might not go right. But, but I think also it's like, it, it wouldn't work connecting that, that level of I, I don't emotion. have that. I don't have that gear. I, yeah. I came up a different way. I remember we talked one time about, uh, something like, uh, you were talking about how Spotify is not a music business. It's a subscription business. Do you have yeah. any word with, do you have any issue with the word content? <laughs> Oh, <gasps> that is such a great question because mm. 
I got to let Leo explain this. He came up, this just came up yesterday. Yeah, I was talking to Bo yesterday and we were talking oh. about, we, we were talking about um, how so much of the music business in America and the, you know, the publishing business, Hollywood, all of that, as we know, was created primarily by Jews. And part of the reason it, it, it was created by Jews is because it was one of the only spaces that was available to them to work in, right? It was a creative and, outlet for them to be creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also to, to even to create a business. To get a business. It was a business right. that they could go they into. They could go into. But, but it was very marginalized. I mean, it was on the outskirts of, you know, it was on the outside. And mm-hmm. to think where we've come, where now everybody is in the content creation business, which is mm-hmm. as kind of a, an extension of the music business or the or the television business or that you know mm-hmm. that now the idea of being a content creator is not only something that's like not looked down upon but it's like we're all in that business on some level everybody's in the content business right. which in some ways i think may be an outgrowth of you know of of those early jewish american entertainment businesses totally. and how content became so american mm-hmm. like that became the most American thing that you could do is to make, create content. Make mm-hmm. every, it's not just us as musicians, but everybody's creating content. You know, you're a yoga, my wife's a yoga teacher. She's got to create content to get people to come to her yoga class. Everybody's in the content creation business right now. And hence, we've all become a little more Jewish and proof exists that while the Jews were searching for America, America, America. <laughs> searching for the, the Jews. Jews. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> man, well, this is such a treat. Thank you guys so much. Oh, great, Joe. Man. Thanks, man. I'm really so looking much forward fun. to seeing you. Oh, it's going to be great. Thank you so much for listening to our very first episode of Behind the Notes. We hope you enjoyed this special conversation and that you'll join us for future conversations. We've got a lot in store for you and we can't wait to share it. In the meantime, I'd like to thank our presenting sponsors, the Marcus Foundation, the Helen Marie Stern Fund, and the Molly Blank Fund of the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation. For more information about Naranana, please join us at naranaarts.org. That's N-E-R-A-N-E-N-A-H arts.org. Thank you so much. Hope to see you at the show soon.